welcome to this podcast from the Arctic Institute. I'm Tom Fries. After the most recent meeting of Arctic ministers in Karuna, Sweden, and the handover of the Arctic Council chairmanship from Sweden to Canada, I had the chance to talk briefly with Ruth Davis of Greenpeace about the meeting. Ruth was in Karuna during the week's events and talked with me about the new observer states, Greenpeace's People's Arctic Conference, and her excitement about the growing engagement of young people in the critical issues that face the Arctic and, by extension, all of us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or follow our podcasts on our website. I'd like to thank the band Loess, whose music you'll hear at the beginning and end of this interview. Hi there, Ruth. Uh, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk with me this evening. I know you've just gotten back to the UK from uh, Karuna, uh, so tell me a little bit about what it was like. What was the what was the scene up there? Well, it was it was a strange meeting because it was very intense and packed into a rather short period of time. And obviously, what you saw from the outside was the sort of ceremonial element of it, of the handover from one chair to another, and signing off on on one bit of work and then planning what the next bit was going to be. But as ever, in the kind of outskirts of that, there were a lot of uh, um, intense conversations, quite a lot of controversy, some of which actually spilled over into the into the room. So I would say intense, interesting, and for me, very much a kind of sense of an Arctic Council in in flux and not entirely sure about the direction in which it it wants to to travel next, to be honest. Yeah, you do get that impression even even from the outside that there's sort of a, there's a general direction that uh, things are heading in for sure, but there's still a lot of specifics that certainly need to be discussed. was Greenpeace formally involved in today's meeting in any way? We weren't involved in the official meeting because, as you know, Tom, we have an application in for observer status at the Arctic Council, which in the end was deferred, as I understand, with lots of other applications from organizations. So we weren't in the room with the foreign ministers while the decisions were being made. And I guess, you know, we don't really want to make a huge deal out of that as Greenpeace. Um, We're more interested, really, in the question of whether or not Uh, there's now a kind of opportunity to look at the overall transparency and inclusiveness of the council and for them really to think about the sorts of voices that they want at the table because obviously one of the things that happened this week was um, that there's now a whole load of new observer states and, um, you know, some of those states, like it or not, are ones that have a significant amount of economic and geopolitical power. And I think that must raise the question as to how other voices are heard in the room. Um, There's obviously a challenge in relation to making sure that the voices of the indigenous peoples and the permanent participants don't get drowned out, but actually have an increased level of influence. But there's also the question of how global civil society is represented in the room and how the interests of countries who are affected by things in the Arctic are represented, even if they don't necessarily have the economic power or the geopolitical power to get themselves around the table in the way that perhaps some of the new observer states do. And uh, what's your take on that as a whole, on the on the wisdom of bringing in all of these new observer states? Are you uh, are you concerned that it's going to dilute the voice of indigenous peoples at the Arctic Council? And did you get any indication one way or the other while you were up there? 
Well, I mean, I, I think this, it's always unwise to put words into people's mouths, and I'm sure that, you know, you will be talking to the permanent participants and they themselves will have a much clearer and, and uh, you know, more detailed view of that than, 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 I, than I could have. Um, the only thing that I would say about that is that... Um, you know, the precedent that the Arctic Council set by there being uh, indigenous peoples uh, around the table as permanent participants is one that everybody has admired. The question is, where do you go from there? Because it still remains, I think, um, a big question mark over the extent to which actually the permanent participants have a direct influence on the decision making in the council. So, you know, I, I, what we're suggesting from a, from a Greenpeace perspective, um, and, you know, we want this to be part of a dialogue. We don't think we necessarily have the answers. We're just making some suggestions is that perhaps there needs to be an overall review of inclusiveness and transparency that would include looking at the way to ensure that any decision-making in the Arctic had, you know, the kind of uh, full prior informed consent of indigenous peoples, but really went that step further to try to make sure that they were central decision-making, not just um, uh, around the table while that decision-making was, was, was happening. Sure. And uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, Greenpeace was actually up in Karuna prior to the Arctic Council meeting for the uh, People's Arctic Conference. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that conference and uh, the logic behind it and any outcomes? Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, we, were, we were hosting that um, in partnership with a number of different indigenous peoples from and the logic behind that really from our perspective is that we want to try to have a sustained dialogue with indigenous peoples about what they see as their, their interest and future in, in, in the Arctic um, and also to try to build common ground and bridges over where we uh, feel that actually some of the risks that are being taken in rapid industrialization and particularly around oil drilling are risks that are unacceptable both for wider civil society and unacceptable as um, many of those indigenous peoples groups were saying unacceptable to those who live in the Arctic as well. So that was really the principle behind it was trying to develop a more a more sustained and deeper dialogue, a proper exchange of views and to find where there's common ground between all of us who are looking to find a sustainable future on this planet. And that, that's about future, future generations, both inside and outside of the Arctic. So what's the, uh, what's the sort of takeaway message from the conference? Would it be at all accurate to say that the takeaway was sort of extractive industries, you know, stay out of the Arctic? No, I don't think that is an accurate description because there are many different views, um, you know, as you will yourself know, um, uh, amongst communities in the Arctic about, uh, you know, what's appropriate and not appropriate. And I, I, as I say, I'm, I'm very keen not to be seen to be putting words in people's mouths. There are also all sorts of different kinds of extractive activities. And, you know, somehow amongst all of this, we have to find a way of... Um, securing a future which means avoiding the, the most risky and reckless of those activities, which in our view absolutely includes, for example, offshore oil drilling, whilst at the same time enabling people in the Arctic to um, you know, have, a, have, a, have a possibility of, of in, increased, increased development of certain kinds and have a, an increased opportunity for employment that will enable them actually to stay in the places where they live. But I, I think it's really important as well to, to, to remember that the backdrop to a lot of this is the escalating impacts of climate change. So that when we're having a conversation about oil extraction in particular, we're not just talking about the local impacts, which we think would be devastating if in the case of a spill, but we're also talking about the wider question of whether or not the response to the melting ice uh, of rushing in to try and extract more fossil fuel resources is actually an appropriate one, given the state of the crisis that we're all facing at the moment. Well, that's certainly a logical point of view. Um, 
You mentioned the catastrophe that could result from an oil spill in the Arctic. Um, as uh, as we all read, there was an agreement signed on oil spill uh, preparedness and response. Uh, any reactions to that agreement? And uh, yeah, how do you see that? Well, you'll be aware that uh, um, Greenpeace had a copy of that uh, 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 agreement um, some time ago. Um, it hasn't substantively changed since it was it was leaked, and I'm afraid that we feel that it is a a, a, a wholly inadequate response to the, to the nature of the challenge. I mean, there's two things here. The first is that actually it doesn't really, as a document, impel any specific practical minimum standards on governments in terms of preparedness, and it includes nothing that would uh, increase the level of liability for companies should there be a spill, so that they would be forced to take into account the full costs of whatever it was that they had been doing as a company. So the preparedness agreement in itself is, is wholly inadequate. But it also obviously steps over the question of the fact that, uh, you know, most people who've ever looked at the idea of whether you could clean up substantial amounts of oil in the ice have said that that isn't possible. And so the real issue here is actually whether you should be doing that at all in the first place and the question of whether there should be common binding standards for prevention. Now, uh, one of the interesting things that happened in the meeting, um, and uh, anybody who's interested can go and uh, obviously sort of check out the the um, webcast of that meeting was that actually, um, you know, some some discontent was voiced in the meeting about the agreement on preparedness and whether it was strong enough. But also the Finnish minister was able to articulate the fact that he thought that it was necessary for there to be common binding rules. So I think, you know, our response to what's going on with, with, with oil regulation in and around the, the Arctic Council is what is on the table now is wholly inadequate. But we do see the possibility for some kind of change because we hear different and dissenting voices coming from different members of the Arctic Council. And we need more of that. We need more debate from members of the Arctic Council raising different perspectives because otherwise the perception will be that it's not just even a closed club, but it's actually a group who can only agree on one thing, and that's pretty much to do nothing. Yeah, I can certainly see how it could look that way. I mean, God knows it's it's difficult to build consensus in any international organization. Um, I know you've had an extremely long week, so I won't keep you much longer. Uh, but let me just ask you in closing, any uh, any last thoughts on uh, on the week's events? Uh, yeah, I mean, I just think I, I, I want to repeat how, how um, uh, amazing it is to see the voices of young people, including the voices of young indigenous people, being raised to say, no, there is a different way forward here and we want something else. And, uh, you know, there were demonstrations going on outside of the meeting. There were side meetings going on. There was an extraordinary amount of science coming forward from Arctic Council working groups telling them about the risk and the nature of the peril that they're in at the moment. And it's only going to be a matter of time, in my view, at least, before those voices start to be heard more clearly and articulated better, actually, in the council meetings themselves. So whilst we were disappointed in the outcome, I still felt a huge amount of um, energy from, from the discussions that were going on in and around the meeting and a confidence that, you know, the status quo cannot be the status quo forever. So I think it's a question of watch this space, really. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, that's a uh, that's a great positive note to end on, Ruth. So I will just say thanks very much for your time, and uh, I look forward to talking with you again. Pleasure as always. Nice to talk to you, Tom. Thanks for joining us for this podcast. You can hear more on our website or subscribe on iTunes. If you've enjoyed the music you've heard, you can check out more music from Loess on iTunes. 
just search for their name, which is spelled L-O-E-S-S. -S.